I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, Credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, Consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature, including a conversation previously thought lost to the ether. But first up, we have Doug Bondow, former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan, discussing his recent trip to Qatar for the Doha Forum. We'll be discussing that as well as the potential decline and erosion of Pax Americana, including a potential future where U.S. dollar hegemony has come to something of an end. We'll also be discussing the crisis in Yemen, the invasion of Ukraine, and much, much more in this 35 minute or so conversation with a rather astute commentator on issues related to U.S. foreign policy. Later on in the program, we'll be hearing from Casey Chalk, a conservative Catholic writer who 
some months ago penned a piece for the American conservative about the reactionary World War I German soldier and writer Ernest Younger, known for his work Storm of Still. Now, I myself find a lot of aspects of Ernest Younger problematic, but I thought this was a rather invaluable conversation that avoided a lot of talk about culture war that we see today between the left and the right, and that really dealt with the human cost of war. It's a truly fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll find it as interesting as I did. I'm very glad to have been able to retrieve it after initially believing it to be lost to, again, the ether. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Doug Bondow on the decline and erosion of Pax Americana. Welcome back to Parallax Views, one of my uh, favorite guests to have on the show, Doug Bondow, who writes regularly for Antiwar.com, uh, American Conservative, I believe also Responsible Statecraft. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm hanging in there. A lot of things going on, but, uh, you know, keeping up the fight. So, Doug, the reason I wanted to have you back on was uh, I was listening to our, our mutual friend Scott Horton's show, and uh, he had you on recently to talk about uh, a trip you made to the Gulf states, I believe the Doha Forum. Could you tell my listeners a little bit about that and maybe uh, what you felt was relevant about your visit there? Well, the country of Qatar, you know, to try to make itself relevant, holds an annual conference where it invites an awful lot of big names and it brings in a huge number of people. It's a, you know, over two days, lots of different forums. You know, some of the folks are very interesting. Some of them say exactly what you predict they would. A lot of the conference is meeting people in between meetings and in small, you know, kind of breakout sessions, you know, off hours. And you really get a feel for what people are thinking about issues, what's on their mind. You know, recognizing you're getting a, a government view when uh, you know the cutter you know puts this on, but they actually bring in quite a few different folks at this forum. You know, there were Iranians there, there are people from the other Gulf countries. Zelensky came in via Zoom. You know, that I mean there really was an attempt to reach around the world. So i I find these things fairly interesting. And what was your main takeaway from uh this forum, this conference? Uh what were the what was the sort of vibe there? Because we're, we're at this very, um, I guess, critical point where I think uh, U.S. power is in question. I, I think everyone's been shocked by uh, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. So what was the sort of uh, vibe you got from the uh, forum? Well, Ukraine was clearly on people's minds, including in the Middle East and the concern about how it would affect them. You know, there was an undercurrent. Everyone understood that uh, China and Russia mattered. They have influence in the Gulf, but the U.S. is the number one security partner that uh, Ukraine played into this. The question of how they were going to kind of skate through that minefield, you know, was on their minds. I mean, Zelensky, you know, they had him speak. They had the deputy foreign minister there. You know, so you had a very strong representation from the Ukrainian side. Nevertheless, you had, you know, folks from across the spectrum. Uh, we, there was an Iranian, uh, you know, a couple of Iranians there, as well as representatives of the Gulf states. Qatar has a better relationship with uh, Iran than uh, Saudi Arabia or Dubai, uh, for example. So what you saw, I think, was this sense of trying to edge 
Iran a bit back into the, you know, kind of the region at the same time. The Iranian representatives got some you know, really tough questions. And I thought in many ways that was the right way to handle it, that it showed Iran belongs, but it challenged Iran on some of its activities. So you, you had a sense, I think, that people recognized they were at a transition, you know, that we're seeing kind of what is the role of Iran? How does that play in? You know, and understanding the U.S. is pulling back a bit. You know, the question is how far? Then what do you do when it comes to the other great powers? Recognizing we've kind of got this black swan event of the war between Russia and Ukraine that has enormous global implications, but the Gulf countries have not rushed to take up the U.S. and European stance against Russia. So I think kind of unsettled what was, uh, you know, might have been the overall you know, feeling there. Not great fear, but that sense that things are changing, we have to adapt. Where do you think see things is heading with regards to, I guess the big question on my mind is, are we headed towards a, a sort of new era? You know, we had Joe Biden recently give that speech where he said, uh, you know, there, there isn't going to be a new new world order that uh, isn't led by the USA. And I, I'm wondering, are, are we potentially seeing the sort of end of, of Pax Americana? Where, where do you sort of stand on that? Well, I think the answer is we're shifting in that direction, but the question is how far and how fast remains, you know, in question. I mean, the U.S. remains the dominant power, and you know, it, one of its advantages is the fact it's allied with major industrialized countries in both Asia and Europe. China doesn't have that. I mean, China's allies, if you call them that, would be North Korea, kind of, sort of. I don't know, maybe Pakistan, kind of. Uh, I don't, you know, maybe Myanmar. Or so. I mean. You know, so China doesn't have that global network. So China matters hugely. Uh, and it's, you know, I think it's going to grow in importance, but it doesn't have that network of friendships and that magnifies American power. And what's happening is that uh, you know, China's you know, kind of wolf warrior diplomacy and sharp elbows have actually been pushing countries more towards us. Where, I mean, the Japanese are saying they're going to double military spending, these kinds of things where, so, so I think the US is going to, maintain a, a dominant position, but it's going to erode. The Europeans are tired of American sanctions, but on something like Ukraine, they want us. So there you see kind of yes here, no there. India clearly concerned about China, doesn't want to war with China, wants to work with the US, but also wants a relationship with Russia. So you're seeing, I think, a lot more complications where it's no longer the unipower. The US is first among equals, country, many countries will come to first, but we have to be much more subtle, much more nuanced in how we deal with people. And to me, Ukraine really demonstrates that because if you look at the top 10 countries economically, seven you know, are putting sanctions on Russia. Look at the top 10 countries by population, only one is doing that, and that's me. That's, uh, you know, that's uh, you know, the United States. You know, so you've suddenly got this radically different situation than say 10 or 20 years ago. So you, you mentioned US relations with Europe. Uh, for people that may not understand what you're referring to there, wh where do you see the sort of tensions between uh, US and European countries, even countries that uh, we may consider allies? Because I, I do think there are these tensions even with countries that you know are presumably uh, friends with us. Well, I think that's right. The United States and Europeans share some very fundamental values and history, and that's real. You know, if you look around the world and say what other countries are democratic and, and in some broad sense liberal, 
<laughs> you're going to be looking at the US, Europeans, and then some of the kind of European offshoots. I mean, you think of Australia, for example, and other countries that Canada that kind of fit within that. And there is something unique that holds these countries together. But the interests are different. I mean, Europeans have a different set of values on some things. It's a political system that is more to the left. It has a, a somewhat different orientation. They talk about you know, Anglo-Saxon capitalism. I mean, British American you know, capitalism is being rougher and you're kind of less, less of a safety net, et cetera. That, those are kind of issues that bother them. They also don't like to be taken for granted. And this kind of goes beyond ideology. This is simply that the US shows up and tells them what to do. You know, at the end of World War II, where they were kind of wrecked, they didn't have much choice. But today, they clearly can say, you know, we want to do something different. And we've seen that with people like Macron of France talking about an independent foreign policy. You know, he's likely to win the election, but uh, Le Pen has talked about pulling you know, them out of the NATO command structure, like de Gaulle, talked about not being part of an American protectorate. So, so those, that kind of stuff is there in Europe where they want to have an independent identity. They want to set their own rules and be an equal. They don't want to be pushed around by the U.S. as much as they want to work with the U.S. Yeah, I was going to say real quick, even with Macron, uh, I remember a few months ago, uh, and this is kind of culture war stuff, which I don't really like to get into, but I, I thought it was interesting a few months ago, he was complaining about um, U.S. importing what, what he, he called it woke culture into France. So I think there's always these, um, you know, tensions between the U.S. and uh, countries like France that a lot of times uh, we in the U.S. Uh, neglect to notice. I think that's right. France especially has that feeling of being, you know, a country and a history that goes back well before the United States. I mean, the French language, you know, they're frustrated at the spread of English. I mean, Le Pen has said that if she wins, she's going to try to reverse the dominance of English, you know, in the European Union. I mean, the irony is that once the British went out, you know, who are the English speaking countries in the European Union? Yet the EU primarily relies on English because everybody speaks that as a second language. But that's one of those elements where for France, you know, the question of their independence, their sovereignty, you know, that matters an awful lot. I think we're going to see that a bit with Germany. I mean, it's complicated now with tripartite government, but there's been a breakdown of the governing parties. They're, the Greens you know, have, have really grown. There's been growth on the right, et cetera. I mean, Italy, you see a lot of these countries that are breaking away from some of those old traditional parties that were so linked to the U.S. and are going to set much more their own way. So again, it doesn't mean the U.S. won't be powerful and influential, but it means it's going to be much more complicated. It can't count on everybody doing what it wants. Suddenly it's going to have to re, you know, relearn the, the art of diplomacy. Uh, one thing that you and Scott also talked about was uh, this issue of U.S. Uh, dollar hegemony. Um, and it, it's interesting because I've seen people on both the left and the right talk about this. Uh, Alfred McCoy, who's uh, a sort of a progressive scholar that is very anti-war, he thinks that uh, dollar hegemony may be uh, eroding. Uh, do you share that view? Where do you see the, the dollar going into the future? Well, I think dollar dominance is eroding, but that doesn't mean it's gone. And I think we, we, we want to be careful overstating how quickly it's going to go. I mean, the dollar has an incredible advantage. I mean, number one, being the incumbent you know, financial measure is extraordinarily important. Everyone has to change for the dollar dominance to go away. You know, so everybody has to think it's in their interest. They have to come up with a new measure. You know, that's not particularly easy. 
And the only real obvious alternative currency would be the euro. I mean, the Chinese won, you know, there's an awful lot of them, but nobody believes the Chinese numbers. I mean, there's no you know, transparency in the Chinese monetary and fiscal system. Now, we assume they lie about growth rates, you know, that they are growing, but probably not as fast as they claim. We have to look for numbers like electricity use and things like that to try to, where you figure those things are probably true, then what does that tell you about probable economic growth rates? So what I think we're going to see is just kind of a slow erosion across the board. That is, you know, India and Russia are talking about having rupee ruble <laughs> trade. That is not used dollars. Yeah, they, if you set up you know, trade in alternative currencies, you avoid the risk of being sanctioned by the United States. You don't have to go through U.S. financial institutions and acquire dollars to make payoffs. You know, so it really kind of moves that completely away from the United States. Uh, you know, the Russians and the Chinese do a certain amount of ruble yuan trade. You know, the same thing. You know, the Chinese are, have asked the Saudi Arabians to price at least some oil in yuan. Again, that would allow them to buy and sell without having to go and get dollars. So that's one chunk where the more, if that erodes slowly, you're at least limiting the U.S. ability to start sanctioning and imposing its will. You know, the U.S. financial structure is no longer quite so tight that allows the U.S. to suddenly go in and reach almost anyone anywhere. Europe came up uh, with the INSTEX system that was supposed to allow trade with Iran didn't have much activity, but what it was doing is basically each side would come to this institution with their own currencies, and they would go into the institution, and if you had enough trades, money could flow back and forth again without dollars. And that then would insulate them from American sanctions. And so I think we have that. We see greater resistance to buying the dollar. You know, China, uh, you know, Japan, and other countries have grown a bit more wary. They're worried about American uh, debt. I mean, the U.S. is at 100% of GDP in terms of publicly owned federal debt. That's almost at the record of 106% in 1946. CBO says we could go to 200% in mid-century. Those kind of numbers, if they start pushing investors away, they start looking elsewhere. So they start going to, they'll go to the yen, they'll go to the euro. Some of them may decide to go with Chinese or other currencies. So I think this is a slow process. The danger for the U.S. is if we get enough things wrong, you know, we continue to arrogantly sanction everybody, we continue to kind of borrow with, you know, without limit. If we continue to have these kinds of things going on, we might find ourselves in a financial crisis at some point where at just some point the markets suddenly get very nervous about dollars and we could find ourselves in big trouble. What would that slow erosion or, or if things keep going in the direction you're talking about, what, what would that mean, I guess, uh, potentially for like the average American citizen, because it's it's a question I get asked a lot and I feel like I'm not the person to answer it. And I'm glad I have you here to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, clearly, you know, part of it's a political issue in terms of the U.S. government, the power of American institutions. But you're going to find, for example, you're more vulnerable to having price rises and inflation, where if the goods are being you know, priced in other currencies, then you're going to be dependent in terms of exchange rates. You know, so you're, you know, if you find your economy in trouble, those exchange rates can radically change. And suddenly you're going to find yourself paying an awful lot more, much better if you're paying dollars as opposed to something else which you don't control. So it's, you know, and if you, if we lose kind of the easy, somebody else buying our debt, well, then who's going to buy it? You know, will Americans buy it? You know, if you have a loss of foreigners buying it you know, cheap because they think it's the best value out there, 
Americans are going to have to finance it. That likely means interest rate increases. That means you're going to be paying more in net interest. You know, in terms of the federal budget, more is going to come off the top, harder to finance. The harder it is to finance, then suddenly you're going to be paying more overall. You know, interest rates go up again. So that's that's another avenue where we've been very lucky to the extent we can kind of offload a huge amount of our debt. That's another area where Americans could find themselves paying a lot more. I want to get into the issue of, of needing to relearn, as you put it, diplomacy. But uh, first, when it comes to this Ukraine crisis that we're seeing, how would you rate uh, the U.S. response and the Biden administration's response to it thus far? Well, I think that they are right to support Ukraine. I mean, you know, I believe that the U.S. policy and European policy contributed to this. I believe that the U.S. and Europeans were reckless in terms of expansion of NATO and policy towards Russia. Russia warned us, but it didn't justify what Russia did. I mean, this is an unwarranted attack on a country where hundreds of thousands of civilians have died, cities are being turned into rubble. I mean, this is horrific. And it, you know, it is a decision that was made by the Putin government. So that, you know, I think the US government, Europeans are rightly or right to blame them and right to support Ukraine. I do think we have to be very careful and I do give the Biden administration credit on this we have to understand this issue matters a lot more to Russia. They are willing to take greater risks and incur much greater costs. And, and we flipped the Cold War. The Cold War paradigm was the Russians had bigger conventional forces. We threatened to use nuclear weapons in Europe as redress to stop them. Now we have the bigger conventional force. The Russians have a lower threshold for the use of nuclear weapons. So we just have to keep that in mind. There've been a lot of complaints of, well, we're letting him deter us and my reaction is yes, exactly, because he is more likely to use them in the desperate straits because this matters more. We don't want to set that off. So I think that's kind of the complicated dance the administration has been doing. I do complain. I do. I fear that we've been a little too open about the aid we've given. The best way to do that is to do it where you have deniability. Everybody knows you do it. You know, the U.S. gave Stinger missiles to uh, you know the Mujahideen against the Soviets. You don't hold a press conference with it. You don't announce to the world what you're doing. You give deniability. I'm worried we've kind of crossed that. And to my mind, the major failing is it looks to me like we're far more willing to help the Ukrainians fight than we are to help them find some peaceful exit. It, that war needs to end. Most of the Ukrainians, they're paying the, the biggest price. You know, four to five million Ukrainians are refugees have fled elsewhere in Europe, particularly to Poland. I was in Poland a couple of weeks ago. You know, we had a couple of Ukrainians speak to a conference that I was involved in. You know, th this is huge. I mean, this or you know, 10% of the population has fled the country. You know, so this war needs to end. And I think the administration needs to push more and make clear, you know, and be careful with, you know, kind of throwing out words of genocide. War crimes have been committed. That's different from genocide. We need to be very careful with this. Putin's a bad guy, but we need to be able to talk to him and try to find some solution to where we're at. Yeah, and, and just for my part, I, I guess what I was wondering is, um, I've actually in some ways been surprised by Biden because I, I think he's been more restrained than I would have expected. I mean, aside from that flub about regime change, <laughs> uh, you know, the, he, you know, he's been against the no-fly zones talk and, and whatnot. Uh, I, I think there has been a little bit more restraint coming from this administration. No, I think that's right. I think this is one of those areas where the president, you know, he's been around a long time and I think he understands war. He understands Soviet or Russian sensibilities. He understands, 
you know, that a lot of wars happen inadvertently, mistakenly, accidentally. You know, wars happen that people really don't want. And if you get careless, you get that. And he's done well resisting because, I mean, there are Democrats and Republicans who push for no-fly zones and humanitarian corridors and want more weapons to go. And Zelensky has pushed for that. And he's I think he's taken the right stance. His primary job is to ensure America's security. And then out of that, he's going to address Ukraine and try to help them. But he's trying to focus on American security first. So with regards to what you said earlier about uh, the, the need to relearn diplomacy, what, what do you sort of mean by that? Like, what, how are we to deal with countries like, say, um, a Russia or a China or um, a North Korea? And also not just that, but uh, for, for instance, um, you, you have a new leadership in power in South Korea that, that's very hawkish on North Korea. And North Korea is responding to that hawkishly in response. So it seems like we're dealing with all kinds of issues at once. I think what the first point is that diplomacy is your starting point, not military action. I mean, there's been a tendency, I think, with the U.S. that, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The U.S. has a wonderful military, you know, the best military on Earth. So, well, why don't we use it, you know, for this? Why don't we use it for that? You know, I mean, Donald Trump talked about invading Venezuela. You know, I'm just thinking, what, why would one talk about invading? I mean, why would that be a starting point for policy? What what conceivable reason would you stand up and say, I want to invade you know, Venezuela? Hasn't attacked us, hasn't threatened. I mean, I don't like the Maduro regime, but that's not the point. There are a lot of governments around the world I don't like. The last, I, I simply don't show up and say, well, why don't we invade Saudi Arabia? I want to get rid of the uh, you know, crown prince. And heck, why don't we invade India? You know, I mean, I don't like Modi. And why don't we invade? No, not, so to my mind, that's one, it's kind of changing the conversation where we really do think in terms of we start out military action is not in front of us. And then we have a very narrow sense of when we use it. I mean, you really have to have vital interest at stake. It's the, you know, it's something that's incredibly important. It's at the end of exhausting other alternatives. I mean, those sorts of things. And I think diplomacy requires us to realize we don't always get our way. I think that's hard for Americans. I mean, part of that's Americans, I think ultimately are good hearted. They really want to remake the world in a wonderful way. The tragedy is very often they don't understand the world and don't know much about it. You know, that they kind of have visions. I mean, I, I've, I've written before, I had actually an Australian who thanked me, but I wrote an article and said, well, you know, we shouldn't assume all Australians want to be Americans. You know, and, that, and I wrote, got an Australian who wrote me and said, thank you. It's nice to have an American who understands that because there's that tendency, well, of course, everybody wants to come here. Well, you know, actually other people are proud of their countries. They have their own heritage. They think they have something special to offer. We have to take that into account. In a country like France, these sensitivities are real and we can be snarky about them. And I don't mind being snarky about the French, but if you wanna have a relationship, you wanna to work together, you have to take that into account, understand the history, find a way to appeal to it and be willing to allow them to make decisions and you know, listen to them, et cetera. I think all of that, we've, we've lost a lot of that and we need to regain that. We're in a tough uh, you know, struggle with the Chinese. We have to do this better than them. I also wanted to ask you, so we now have this, this uh, ceasefire in, in Yemen. And of course, you wrote about that recently uh, for antiwar.com. Uh, it's been seven years. We're getting a ceasefire now. Uh, what do you think this means with regards to our relationship uh, to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates? And do you think the ceasefire will hold? Well, I mean, I sure hope it holds. I mean, that's one of the most terrible, awful you know, wars that we've seen. 
And of course, three successive administrations have made the American people accomplices to what I view as war crimes. I mean, what, what's been done to the Yemeni society. I mean, the Houthis are bad. I mean, that, none of this suggests that this is a good group. But the notion of going in and bombing civilians and bombing cities and everything else is just, it's terrible. So I certainly hope it holds. I mean, I do hope that what this represents is that, you know, the Saudis and the Emiratis have come to realize they need out. I mean, uh, the crown prince started this before he was the crown prince. He was the deputy crown prince and defense minister and started it. And you know, they were telling the U.S., oh, this would be a few weeks. And I think that's the reason the Obama administration went in with it. Okay, we support them. We win some brownie points. They're mad at us over the JCPOA, you know, Iran. So we help them out. It's only a few weeks worth. It doesn't matter. Well, of course, it went on and on. Trump went into it even more enthusiastically, and Biden has effectively continued. You know, slightly less. Uh, you know, I mean, arguably, he talks about doing defensive support, but you know, frankly, there's not a lot of difference in terms of what they're doing and what's defensive and offensive. Uh, yeah, so my hope is that this shows that these countries understand that they've got to end this, that it's, it's costly, it's horrible for the reputation, they're not gaining you know, from this continued war. And that then reduces the pressure on US administration. The US hopefully can step back a little bit and instead of pushing for uh, you know, negotiations on Saudi and Emirati terms, you know, push to have, this has to be a Yemeni solution. I mean, these are Yemenis ultimately who, I mean, what started this was internal conflict that the Saudis internationalized, you know, to their detriment and it helped bring uh, Iran into it. Iran didn't start it. I mean, the Saudis are the ones who internationalized it. So I'm hopeful. I was going to say too, on, on the Houthi thing, what I always tell people is uh, you don't have to like the Houthis, but I mean, if, if you're a Yemeni, uh, and, you know, you're being bombarded by the Saudis, uh, your number one concern is the, the sort of aggressive invading force. You know, you can talk about the Houthis later. No, absolutely. And indeed, it's, the Houthis are not the only ones fighting on their side. I mean, there are, I mean, others are allied with them because they're fighting the outsiders. And in fact, Hadi, you know, the president they were working to overthrow, isn't, you know, like you call in airstrikes on your own people, it doesn't make you popular. You know, the notion of thank you, Mr. President. Now, you know, you've blown up my you know, apartment complex. Why, you know, I'm supposed to like you. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. And to my mind, the fact, you know, the, who is better is simply not an issue for the United States. It's not a reason for the U.S. to be getting involved in this. That this is one of those places where we should be saying, you guys need to work this out. We need peace and we shouldn't support anyone promoting war as opposed to, oh, yes, let's embrace our good friends over there who happen to be essentially, you know, it's an authoritarian state, ruthless politically, and in this case, can, you know, committing war crimes. Yeah, that, the last thing I wanted to touch upon with you is uh, there's a lot of talk lately about um, uh, it's becoming a world of the, the democracies versus the autocracies. What do you make of all this talk that's arising right now about that? Do you think that's where things are headed or do you think that may be uh, off the mark? Well, I think the problem is everybody likes to kind of baptize what they're doing with morality. I mean, it's an awful lot better to tell the world, you know, we're on the sides of the good guys. You know, we're on God's side. We're doing, we're doing God's work. And you know, these days, the way you say that is, well, we're the democracies versus the autocracies. But of course, it's never been that clean. <laughs> and, you know, the reality is that the world is a messy place. And the challenge is, well, if you want to promote your interest and protect your people, well, sometimes you got to work with countries that might not be terribly friendly. You know, and as we talked, I mean, even with the Europeans, democratic states, we have differences. 
you know, the good news is we haven't gone to war with them for a long time, even though we've had wars within like Serbia and the Balkans we've gotten involved in for them. You know, we haven't gone to war with the French or the Germans you know, for a long time. That's really good. But the notion that democracy alone brings countries together versus autocracy, I think doesn't, it misses so much complexity. I mean, what is India? India is a democracy. It is the world's largest democracy. It has free elections. It also has as president some guy who's a bit of a thug, who's cracked down on the media, who's, done, I mean, the kind of the Hindu nationalism, the brutality towards you know, Muslims and Christians. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there that, well, I wouldn't call this a liberal democracy. I mean, Pakistan, what do you call Pakistan? The military, you know, and we, we take different sides in these. So to me, we need to be looking much more at liberal societies, societies that protect individual rights, these sorts of things, and as opposed to this overall category of autocracy and democracy. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, uh, to add to that, I, I mean, a lot of times our allies haven't, um, I guess, upheld to the ideals that we claim to hold, you know, things like the annexation of Western Sahara by Morocco. So you, you have all these contradictions that happen, and I, I think sometimes uh, those get exploited in sort of whataboutisms um, by our um, adversaries. And I, I guess in closing here, um, where do you see the the relationships with a lot of these countries going into uh, the future? I, I mean, because I've had some people say to me that, you know, Saudi Arabia or the UAE or even Israel may end up moving closer to uh, Russia or, or China because of um, issues like human rights and, and whatnot. Well, I think first is we shouldn't assume that in the world, everybody will be closer to us. I mean, there are times where we seem to act as if we are the weak power and the other countries a superpower. Oh, my goodness. You know, what if the Saudis bought some weapons from Russia? Well, I think our reaction should be, OK, so what? I mean, the notion that we, you know, the most powerful country on Earth are at risk because the Saudis might have a better relationship of some sort with Russia or that Egypt might have, you know, somewhat better. I mean, my reaction is, well, so what? Who needs whom more? So we shouldn't view ourselves as being so weak. We should recognize, you know, there are tra transactional benefits of a lot of these relationships, but very often we don't have to do very much. The Saudis want to sell oil. I mean, it's not like we have to be nice to the Saudis to convince them to sell oil. I mean, how else can the crown prince buy himself a new yacht and a big palace if he doesn't sell oil? Of course he's going to sell oil. I mean, the Saudi you know, royals would be out of power immediately if there's no money to hand out to everybody. So it strikes me first is that we can recognize we're in a messy world. We're going to have a lot of you know, involvement with a lot of countries we may not like for various reasons. And let's recognize, let's do that. But we, that doesn't mean we have to be nice to them. It doesn't mean we have to endorse them. It doesn't mean we have to kind of treat them as allies. And, and I think that we also need to you know, realize that you know, Russia, especially China, this is going to change. I mean, they, they trade much more with like 150 countries than we do. I mean, they're the dominant economic power, trading power on earth today. That's a reality. We can't change that. But what we can do is have good relationships with countries, have good trading relationships. Don't feel we have to compete on every measure. But instead, you know, I think there's a lot America stands for that it can sell and it can promote. We should do that without feeling, you know, over, kind of overwrought if somebody else also does well. And just finally, we need to be realistic. I mean, the notion that we can transform the world is simply not true. I mean, I would love to snap my fingers and have China respect human rights. That's not gonna happen. 
I think there are things at the margins we can do. The best thing we can do is model good behavior, frankly, do better ourselves. And beyond that, you know, let's do what we can, use the bully pulpit, et cetera, but understand we're limited, you know, and not have illusions. The, the last thing, and this sort of just popped in my head because I feel like you, you would be able to answer it pretty well, but I, I think those of us that are on the pro-restraint, anti-war end of foreign policy, I think sometimes we face an issue where, um, how do I put this? So I, I've known some people that will have this knee-jerk reaction and say, oh, Putin must be the good guy because the U.S. is the bad guy and, and things of that nature. And I'm sure you've seen that as well. How do you think that we on the sort of pro-restraint end of the foreign policy debate uh, should be sort of conducting ourselves and threading the needle in understanding uh, these geopolitical situations and not necessarily taking a, uh, you know, oh, good guy versus bad guy sort of simplistic view of things. No, I think that the starting point is, you know, kind of how we protect the American people, how we serve the American people. Ultimately, no U.S. policy, no U.S. government will survive if it doesn't fulfill that basic mission. And then going forward, it doesn't, you know, the people against us aren't necessarily good or bad. It's a question of what they do. And I, I mean, I've seen among both left and libertarians at times, I think, a tendency to want to say, well, even like in North Korea, well, you know, the U.S. shouldn't be doing certain things. So that's, it's imperialistic if we do that. And my reaction, well, okay, that's fine, but let's not have any illusions about what the North Korean regime is. I mean, the, you know, the, you know, the North Korea or the, I mean, it, uh, Xi Jinping in China or you know, Vladimir Putin, it, these are not things we should view as being kind of normal outgrowths of na- a kind of a nationalist system where people are making free choice. You know, these are bad people who've taken control and used force and brutalized those under them. So let's not lose that. And I think to maintain credibility, we have to make clear to others, we understand that. That So if I'm criticizing US policy towards Russia, it doesn't mean I like Vladimir Putin. I would like to have him gone. But I'm realistic enough to say, if you throw him out, who knows what comes in? That again, I don't have illusions. That you know, I'm, I'm trying to deal with a world that's very complex and real. So I think that, and I've, I've worried about some of the rhetoric I've heard, and I, I, I like to listen to re- webinars on the left, because you know, the groups that don't want a Cold War say with China, these sorts of things. And at times you get people on who sound pretty pro-PRC. And my reaction is we shouldn't be pro-PRC. <laughs> I mean, Xi Jinping is not a good guy. So that's not why we don't want to have a Cold War. We don't want to have a Cold War because it's not in the interest of the American people or the Chinese people. We don't want a Cold War because it's not the way to bring freedom to China. We don't want a Cold War because if you want to prevent an imperialist escapade and real war, you don't want a Cold War because a Cold War could easily lead to So We need to make clear that what we are advocating is completely separate from our judgment of the nature of the regime. And we understand these are bad people. So I write articles on human rights and criticize these folks and just say, we let's not illusion. Let's not, you know, these people are bad people, but that doesn't change our policy of restraint, which is justified for a whole host of reasons, including the welfare of the people of these other countries. Well, I want to thank you again, Doug Bondow, for coming on Parallax Use. Uh, anything you would like to say in closing to my listeners and uh, how they can keep up with your work? Well, I write uh, you know, regularly at antiwar.com. I do a column for them a couple times a week, so I'd love to have them tune in there. I think a lot of good people on there. 
uh, you know, people who write extraordinarily good stuff trying to keep the peace. I write a column for American Conservative, which isn't kind of the usual <laughs> right-wing fare that you know one might find. I write for Responsible Statecraft, as you pointed out, the Quincy Institute, and a number of other places. You, you can also find my work on the Cato Institute uh, website, uh, www.cato.org. Would love to have you on there. And I, I really think this is a moment where we need to work together that we recognize, you know, if you're looking for kind of from left to libertarian to, you know, kind of even some kind of the right to however you define it, there are a lot of people out there who recognize the importance of peace. We need to build a peace coalition. We have to work together. And I think there are a lot of opportunities for us, far too many, frankly, opportunities that I would like. But this is something where I'd love to see us get to work together. We need to find a way forward. These are very bad times if you believe in a peaceful world. Next up, a conversation with Casey Chalk that uses the experiences and stories of World War I German soldier Ernest Younger, a rather conservative and even reactionary author, admittedly, to give an insight into the human costs of war. Whatever you may think of Younger, I think that the conversation Chalk and I had was a rather interesting one, and we both come from rather different ends of the political spectrum. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now, with that being said, let's get right to it with Casey Chalk. Welcome to Parallax Views. Casey Chalk, a writer at the American Conservative. I think uh, he's also written for Crisis Magazine, the New Oxford Review, and a number of other publications, uh, the Imaginative Conservative, uh, among others. And he's joining us on this edition of the program to discuss an article he wrote entitled the Somme and the Global War on Terror uh, at the American Conservative website. How are you doing today, Casey? I'm well. Thank you very much for having me on. So this article was uh, a rather interesting sort of perspective on the recent fallout from Afghanistan. And I just wanted to allow you to maybe talk about what inspired you to write this specific article. So um, I did not have very much familiarity with uh, Ernst Younger, who um, <laughs> lived quite an amazing um, and uh, controversial life, uh, but I had been reading his uh, World War I memoir. He himself was a, a German soldier, an officer, uh, who started serving in the, on the Western Front um, in uh, northeastern France in 1915. And basically his memoir takes us through until uh, the end of, of the war in November of 1918. And I just found as I was reading, uh, starting this summer was the beginning of the drawdown in Afghanistan in which I had, I had served uh, un, under an, uh, over a course of uh, several tours. And I just kept seeing places where it's, it's just, it read, oh, too familiar. Um, so that was sort of the inspiration for connecting Younger's own experiences uh, on the Western Front of World War I um, to, to those of uh, soldiers, uh, U.S. soldiers who have fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, Syria over the last 20 years. 
And before we get more into younger, I wanted to ask you, what, what were your general feelings on uh, the pullout from Afghanistan? Because I think a lot of people, um, especially people that were pro-withdrawal or are maybe more in favor of a less interventionist foreign policy, a more restrainist vision of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, a lot of us, I think, uh, were very much supportive of withdrawing the troops finally from Afghanistan. At the same time, I mean, the way that it happened uh, was very, you know, ultimately tragic, I think. Yeah, I think tragic is a good word to describe it. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, personally, yes, I, I was very uh, happy and supportive to, to when I uh, when I had heard that um, President Biden was going to be continuing uh, the plans that have been uh, you know, put in place by uh, former President Trump to withdraw all of our troops from Afghanistan. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think even people that um, are uh, very much in Biden's political camp could acknowledge that things should have happened a little bit with a little bit more planning. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly not the disaster that unfolded at Hamid Karzai International Airport. Um, good grief. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a terrible situation. I was going to say it was interesting. I know uh, Pat Buchanan wrote an op-ed recently saying, you know, uh, in a way, you know, this is another um, Saigon moment. And he sort of said that, you know, for the first time, a lot of Americans, especially younger Americans, are learning what it means to, I mean, essentially lose a war. Yeah, that's right. I, although, you know, as someone who grew up as part of the 9-11 generation, I was a senior in high school. Um, I guess I, I, uh, I have not read enough of, you know, folks of the next of the, the next generation on their perspective, how they, yeah, how they interpret this. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I would imagine that it is very sort of shocking um, and debilitating to, you know, to hear so much of, uh, you know, U.S. policymakers in the military talk about how we, we maintain the most effective and superior fighting force on the planet. And yet, yeah, we're defeated by a bunch of, uh, yeah, tribal insurgents with AK-47s and IEDs. So in regards to Ernest Younger, for my listeners, in case they're unfamiliar with Ernest Younger, what are sort of the bullet points you would give uh, for people that need an introduction? So because of his valorous service over the course of World War I, Younger was wounded, I think maybe 16 times <laughs> over the course of the war, several times so badly that he you know, took, had to take months off to rehabilitate, but continued to go back eagerly, courageously to fight. Uh, but he was awarded you, all kinds of- You cut of out there for a second there. You said he was awarded uh, to fight and then it cut off. Oh, just that um, he was awarded a number of medals uh, on behalf of uh, some of the most prestigious that the German military uh, could offer. Um, so he was a war hero. After the war, this memoir was published. It was very popular. He wrote a number of other books in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, fell within the conservative camp within German politics, which, uh, of course, uh, caused tensions in the 30s with the rise of the Nazi party. He was very critical of the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis knew that. But he was not willing to go uh, as far as some of the other Germans in the 30s and 40s, you know, such as like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, or some of the other Prussian nobility. And um, was sort of, you know, strong armed into serving in an administrative role 
for the Germans during World War II in Paris. And because of that, he was very much maligned. Um, he was investigated by the Allies after the war. They basically determined that his complicity with the Nazi regime was, was very limited. Um, so he was, he was never tried of any war crimes or anything like that. Um, and he, then he continued to, he sort of went back into private life and uh, operated as a prominent intellectual and writer uh, for the remainder of his career. He lived a very long, I think he lived to be over a hundred years old. Um, and uh, yeah, it was sort of a, in many respects, um, a, a conservative that I think falls uh, sort of in, in the same line as a lot of those who are affiliated with the American conservative that, you know, they, they understand the need for, um, you know, what, you know, Catholic social de teaching would call, uh, you know, solidarity, the idea that, um, you know, all of society needs to work for the, for the common good of all, right. And rather that he was very skeptical, for example, of, uh, un un uh, sort of, uh, unfettered ca uh, capitalist markets. I guess since we mentioned the whole, um, Nazi thing, what do you think the best argument for saying, because a lot of people are going to listen if they know Younger or think they know Younger, they're going to say uh, Younger was just a, a fascist or a Nazi. And I actually don't think uh, he was a Nazi or a fascist. I think he's more of a just um, maybe unconventional conservative. I think he does have sort of aristocratic ideals. But what would you say to people that try to write Younger off as merely a, a fascist or a Nazi? I think I would say two things. The first I would say, well, you just need to be familiar with his writings. I mean, he wrote very critically of the Nazi party in the 30s um, and basically just tried to avoid them. I mean, he went into you know, reclusion with his brother. Um, and actually one of the novels that was published in the 30s, I forget the name of it, The Marble Cliffs or The Glass Cliffs, something like that. On the Marble Cliffs. Yeah, Marble Cliffs uh, is, is a uh, sort of a lightly veiled criticism of Hitler and the Nazis. Um, so that, that would be point one. I think point two is, this is a point that Jordan Peterson raises often, is I, I think we all need to be very careful when we criticize uh, other people from uh, other historical periods and put ourselves in those shoes and see and think about how would we have reacted? You know, if we were German citizens, even if we were suspicious, critical of the Nazi regime, would we have been so brave to have stood up and be willing to go, you know, to, uh, to the gas chambers and be tortured and shot in the back of the head. I mean, I like to think that I would have that courage. Um, uh, God willing, I, I would if ever presented with circumstances like that. But I think, it, I think it's a little bit unfair and um, what C.S. Lewis calls uh, uh, evincing a, a chronological snobbery um, to just sort of write people off because uh, they didn't choose the most perfect option in a, in a time of great um, yeah, tragedy and, and uh, conflict. So right now I'm looking at a review of Storm of Steel that was written by uh, someone I'm not really a big fan of, uh, David Frum. Uh, he wrote uh, David's book club, Storm of Steel, a book review uh, in the Daily Beast. And I guess he took issue with uh, Younger's portrayal of war. He, he views uh, Younger as taking uh, a detached approach that doesn't necessarily uh, show the, the true horrors of war. He almost goes as far as to say that uh, Younger ultimately has a, an almost positive or romantic view of war. I'm curious, uh, what's your take on that? Do you think it's as simple to say as, is it 
accurate to say that Younger has a romanticist view of war is what I'm getting at. He certainly has a romanticist view of war that comes through um, throughout the book. Um, he was a very proud German and he very much believed in uh, the political cause of Germany. So yes, that's very much there. I mean, he, he is desirous to exemplify courage as a soldier and, and he definitely views the battlefield as, um, as gory uh, and, and explicitly brutal as he describes it. He, he still views it in this lens of an opportunity to, uh, I don't know, exemplify almost the, the very pinnacle of what human virtue is capable of in terms of courage um, and, uh, and, and human sacrifice. The, the one, real yeah, quickly, ahead. the one thing that always stood out to me when I read Storm of Steel in college was he almost views war in, in some ways as a, almost like a gentleman's sport. He doesn't, one of the things that really stuck out is he does not hate the enemy on the battlefield. It's, you know, in fact, he's, he wants to honor them in a way He's like, it's nothing personal. It's all very impersonal to him. It is this very sort of uh, Christianized, I suppose for Younger as a Lutheran, Lutheranized, uh, I don't know, appropriation of a lot of ideals found in the classical literature that Younger was obviously very familiar with. There's a number of analogies and, and allusions that he makes throughout the text to Troy uh, and, and the classical uh war tradition of the Greeks and Romans. So that's certainly at, at play as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, alternatively, the, he is very uh, explicit and honest about how horrifying much of uh, the experiences uh, that, that, that he lives through over three years on the front. I mean, he describes living with, uh, you know, fr French civilians were basically impressed or, you know, forced to quarter soldiers in their homes and he developed very strong and, and uh, amiable relationship, relationships with them, so much so that one of the families he sees at some point later in the war, they actually offer him a couple of gifts <laughs> um, because they were so impressed by his, like you said, his sort of like gentlemanly aristocratic uh, character. Um, but no, I mean, he, he describes in, in, in obviously um, uh, depressed and, uh, and, and forlorn detail, the civilians that he sees dead on the battlefield and like you said, there's very much a sympathy for the enemy um, and an appreciation for the bravery of the Brits, especially the, the Scottish Highlanders. He was, <laughs> I think a lot of the Germans were terrified of them in particular. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I like the way you put it in the article. You uh, basically say that Storm of Still describes the arbitrary, senseless, and terrible qualities of large-scale industrial warfare and offers a helpful, if disturbing, corollary to our consideration of the global war on terror. Let's stick on that point. What do you think uh, that Younger offers in regards to how we think about the global war on terror? And maybe even before we get into that, I, I don't know if you um, have anything on hand that really shows that Younger is aptly describing the large-scale industrial warfare and its consequences in Storm of Steel. Sure. So very shortly after he arrives on the front, there's a shell that bursts over the entrance to a building that kills 13 people, including, it's very interesting the way he, he describes it, Gebhard the music master, 
uh, whom he had witnessed personally during concerts in Hanover. Um, and he, he, write, he says, uh, talking to my comrades, I saw the incident had rather blunted their enthusiasm for war. Right, and then good grief, it just gets a lot worse from there. Um, so, you know, soldiers who are experiencing all kinds of terrible wounds, um, they're emitting high-pitched screams on the battlefield. Other people are just kind of resigned to their fate after having been wounded. He describes um, uh, one wounded soldier uh, after Younger himself has been wounded. They're on an ambulance, and this guy, he knows he's going to die, and he basically, is, he's begging the other soldiers on the wagon, somebody to, to pick up a pistol and shoot him in the head. And the way Younger describes it is, this was the home of the great god Pain. And for the first time, I looked through a devilish chink into the depths of his realm. So, yeah, I mean, as much as you can say he valorizes war in certain respects. I mean, this is a man who is face to face with death and terrified of it. Um, I, I was yeah, going to add to that. I, think that I was just going to add to that real quickly. Uh, and I, I don't want to psychoanalyze Younger too much, but part of me wonders if that sort of cold, detached view of war that he has in, in some ways may be... Um, a bit of a defense mechanism because I mean, I, I've read enough about Younger. It seems like he probably developed PTSD at some point and maybe that sort of detached view of war that he has um, maybe a little bit of a defense mechanism in some ways. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. I mean, certainly in my experience in Afghanistan, I experienced that. I know plenty of other soldiers that experienced that. I think uh, to some degree, a lot of the things that soldiers do in war in places like Afghanistan and Iraq exemplifies that, right? So uh, going out and, 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 you know, being on patrol all day, being in firefights, taking incoming rocket fire, and then what do you do in your spare time? You play Call of Duty. <laughs> you know, like, what, what, what is that? But almost sort of like, a, you know, it's, a, it's sort of an internalization of what you're experiencing and, and sort of making it into play. So... Before I, I, I had interrupted you to, to mention that, was there something else you were going to add uh, before my rude interruption? No, no, go for it. So I, I was going to ask, what then can we learn from uh, Ernest Younger and Storm of Still in regards to uh, the global war on terror? I think there's a lot of comparisons that are quite valuable looking at Younger's experience of, like he says, industrial war. I think one of the, the themes or the, the, the constant um, images that presents itself is sort of the impersonal nature of it, right? There's just artillery barrages nonstop, both um, those that are coming from the British and French side, but also from his own uh, German artillery behind, uh, behind the trenches, some of which are not aimed particularly well and end up uh, harming uh, his, his, own, uh, his own regiment. That in many respects correlates with the experience of soldiers nowadays, right? It, it's it, drone warfare is terribly impersonal, right? We have soldiers um, working out of little boxes in the Middle East or even from you know, remote locations in the United States who, uh, you know, basically are just using the remarkable technology the U.S. military has, um, you know, at, at, its, uh, at its arm to, uh, to unleash terrible uh, you know, havoc upon uh, people hundreds, thousands of miles away. I mean, granted, I, I know that, you know, many will say that, you know, drones have been very effective and the casualty rates are low, but there are plenty of examples where, you know, civilians have also been killed through these things. But even just the nature of impersonal warfare as a, as a paradigmatic experience, I think is, um, yeah, I think, I think it's something that is, uh, it's terrifying because it, it, it takes, 
it takes away some of the visceral experiences that people have actually in war that leads them to, <laughs> to admit, you know, maybe, maybe this is something we should try to avoid at all costs. And then in, in regards to the, the Battle of the Somme itself, uh, why did you choose to, to hone in on that specific aspect of Storm of Steel in relation to this op-ed that you wrote for the American conservative? I thought that was very interesting. Well, the Somme is uh, certainly the, um, I guess you'd say the low water mark for the British military, the most um, extensive and aggressive uh, offensive that the British launched in 1916 against the Germans. It involved tanks, again, a new feature of uh, industrialized warfare, um, something that I think the Brits thought was a you know, sort of like a so, you know, somewhat secret weapon in their back pocket that they were going to be able to use to really turn the tide in the war. And yet even the tanks themselves become death traps in a way, once the Germans realize that they can use different kinds of grenades or flamethrowers and whatnot in order to um, get, you know, to kill the, the soldiers that are inside of it and who you know, burn to death inside these massive metal contraptions. Um, but also just because it was so pointless. You know, the Somme, I, I, I'd, uh, I think it cost the Brits like a, something like a million casualties. Um, and yet the amount of ground that the British gained over the course of that, I think the Somme went for you know, several weeks, maybe a month or two, um, is minimal, right? It, it, it changed uh, the, the geography of the war uh, to such a small degree. And the Germans within the, you know, when they launched their major offensive in, in uh, 1918, they regained um, much of the ground that, they had, uh, that the Brits had taken. I think another important aspect when we're looking at Storm of Steel in relation to the global war on terror and Afghanistan is that, you know, Younger talks in the book about uh, soldiers after various incidents of a traumatic nature uh, starting to lose their enthusiasm for the war. And I think that definitely happened with Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, that's especially the case. In the very last months of the war, Younger describes a number of um, anecdotes where uh, he has difficulty rallying troops, where a lot of soldiers basically have to be forced to continue fighting at, uh, at gunpoint. Um, soldiers who are uh, cursing uh, and ridiculing um, German officers they encounter, or even the German high command, um, in, in, in rushing to, to get out of battle. Um, and yeah, I think that reflects, a, you know, sort of... Uh, yeah, it, it's certainly a PTSD, but also just a sense of, you know, what have, what have we been doing? It's, um, it's, it's, it's remarkable in a way that Younger, even at the end, is able to maintain some semblance of courage, given how many times he was wounded and, and how many close friends, uh, even his brother, is wounded um, it, uh, over the course of the war. And he actually is responsible for saving his brother's life. And he is even, I mean, throughout the book, I think he even mentions... Uh, soldiers that were killed that were like expectant fathers, you know, which as you point out in the article, it brings to mind, uh, you know, some of the deaths at the Kabul airport. Yeah. I mean, I think he, in particular, one of the ones I describe in the book, I mean, it's, it's a German soldier who at some point, you know, they're in the trenches, he gets up to, you know, do some work on strengthening the trench, stands up and within a few seconds, he's shot in the head. Um, you know, by a British soldier, he never encountered, right. Younger has no clue who that soldier is, that British soldier has no idea who he's killed. Uh, so it, which again, re sort of returns to this impersonality of war. 
um, which, yeah, I think is just terribly devastating for the, you know, the soul of the human person. And I think it's sort of, it, it shows the fact that soldiers on both sides recognized um, sort of the inhumanity of it in that a number of British soldiers reached out to Younger um, af after the war and his memoir was published and they just wanted to talk um, about their experiences together because they had, you know, experienced four years of this, of this, of terror and brutality and never really seeing their enemy face to face. Now, in regards to the question of, not even courage, but I, I was going to say, is there other expressions of courage other than uh, than fighting in wars like Afghanistan? Uh, I guess what I mean by that is, do you think that Ernest Younger, uh, despite maybe his romantic uh, views of warfare, perhaps in showing the brutality of warfare, he can sort of make us think about, hey, do we really want to get involved in a conflict, especially if it's unnecessary? And maybe there's a courage in speaking out when we think, hey, this maybe isn't a necessary war. Oh, my mind immediately goes to the American conservative in its founding in 2003. Um, for uh, listeners, I definitely encourage them to go look at the front cover of that, uh, that very first issue, um, showing a cartoon of basically all of the world trying to prevent Uncle Sam from invading Iraq. I think it took quite a bit of courage for the American conservative at that time to speak out and warn um, the nation that this was going to be a, a, a disastrous conflict. Um, and it took a lot of years for the conservative movement to uh, to come around on that. You know, for many years, attack, as we call it, was uh, was maligned um, and peripheral uh, to conservatism. And it's only within the last, I don't know, maybe eight to ten years that it's uh, sort of you know come to the forefront um, of uh, of the conservative movement. Um, you know, when when Trump um, in that first debate, I wonder, was it in uh, South Carolina, where you know he was the first uh, Republican candidate to just say, "Oh yeah, rock." That was a disaster. That was a failure. What were we ever doing there? You know, and people couldn't believe that he would have the audacity to say some such thing. Not necessarily uh, saying that Trump is a great example of moral courage, but I think you understand what, what I'm what I'm getting at. And I think too, you know, dis despite all the, how do I put this? Despite uh, you know the portrayals of war we may see in a movie like First Blood, the Rambo movies, and whatnot. I, I've always been drawn to what Robert Fisk, the uh, British journalist, has said that in, in a lot of ways, war isn't about you know uh, the news speak that we get in, in our media. It's really about death and the infliction of death. It's about uh, you know civilizations uh, failing to sort things out in a diplomatic way, and what results is massive, massive devastation. And I think one of the fallouts we're having from the war on terror is that people are beginning to think about that more. You know, it's not anything like a Rambo movie or a Rambo sequel. No, I mean, someone has, has witnessed war. A war is a lot of boredom and a lot of work and a lot of waiting. Um, and then punctuated by these, just these moments of unexpected terror. Um, so no, I, yeah, and it's certainly nothing like Call of Duty or these other games that uh, that people play. That I, I think, I, in in many respects, I think are yeah, very deceptive, but also very harmful 
um, to our our understanding of war, just because it also because it makes such a a caricature of what of what violence and you know the 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 tearing of human flesh and uh, and the destruction of the human person really is like. I, mean, I think that was perhaps more than anything else. Um, what was so striking in Younger's narrative is that I just kept thinking every time he would describe one of his German comrades dying and he would provide a little bit of biographical information. Well, I, I could only help to think, man, like that's, that was an individual person who came from a family that had visions and, and dreams of what they hoped their life would be like. Um, and of course, it wasn't just the soldiers, right? He describes a number of French civilians that he sees dead, including one particularly uh, terrifying and sobering image of a, a French girl um, bleeding to death on a, on a doorstep um, outside of her home. And yeah, I mean, I, my, my exhortation to, to listeners and, and to the American people would, would be, you know, please let's, let's avoid doing that, whether, whether we're talking about Afghan or Iraqi children or anywhere else around the world. I, I, we, uh, we, like you said, we have to do everything we can to, to exemplify moral courage um, in a diplomatic conversation um, so that we don't repeat these, uh, yeah, these, these disasters again. I just wanted to add to that too. Uh, one thing that stood out to me, uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this incident, uh, because I think sometimes people forget the global war on terror. Uh, it, it hasn't just affected uh, practitioners of the Islamic faith in places like uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, or, you know, it, it's also oftentimes led to the, you know, wholesale destruction, as you put it, of ancient communities like those of Iraq's Christians. And I think a lot of people forget, yes, there are Christians in places like Iraq. Yeah, there are, um, I mean, war is always going to have these sort of destabilizing effects on, uh, on communities, on, on cultures and civilizations, things that we really can't anticipate. Certainly what happened in Iraq with uh, its, uh, in, in, maybe um, suffering some, some, some persecutions under the uh, Saddam Hussein regime, but largely free to practice their faith under a secular Ba'athist regime. Um, the, the number of Christians remaining in Iraq is, uh, is a small percentage of what, the, what was there 20 years ago before we invaded. Um, much the same can be said for Syria, right? Um, it's <laughs> what a bizarre irony that's Bashar al-Assad for all of his own cruelties and chemical weapons attacks and all the rest of it is a, is a defender of uh, the Christian minority population in Syria. Um, but I mean, and not just Christians, you know, you think about Libya and uh, the NATO intervention there that overthrew Gaddafi caused a massive human migration problem, um, which uh, I think if Europe could have anticipated that, I don't think they ever would have signed up for it. Also, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to note that uh, at one point near the end of the article, you uh, reused this idea of, of slips and you mentioned a slip that happened in uh, Younger's experience uh, of the war. Could you talk a little bit about that and why uh, that term, you know, slips sort of stood out to you? Oh, yeah. I think that was one of the most interesting uh, stories in the book. So it happened during the Battle of the Somme. It was a sergeant in Younger's platoon um, uh, immediately to his left who uh, discharged the wrong flare, right? Like they had different color flares depending on what they were asking uh, German artillery or other units to do. So he sends off the wrong flare and all of a sudden the German artillery goes into you know, major assault mode and uh, shells are falling all around them. Uh, German soldiers are you know, hiding out in, the, in, their, uh, in their trenches. Um, 
what Junger describes as an orgy of destruction. Uh, and, and after some time, I think maybe half an hour to an hour, it eventually stops. And uh, Younger describes it as one man slip of the hand had got the whole titanic machinery of war rolling. And I thought that was such an apt description of what war is even more generally. You know, uh, something provokes uh, a nation or um, a, a party in power or even a, a particular head of state. And uh, he or she decides to get the entire machinery of war rolling. Um, and uh, yeah, the results, um, yeah, can, cannot be envisioned, but they are, uh, they can be just as uh, destructive as what Younger experiences uh, in the trenches at the Somme. And it also, I, I like the point you make near the end of the article that uh, a lot of innocent children grow up and others die knowing little besides war. I mean, it's crazy to think about that. I mean, especially with regards to the global war on terror. I mean, uh, we have a lot of uh, young people in this country who don't know of a time when we weren't at war. Yeah, I, I think the American experience of it is certainly different from those in these war-torn areas, um, just in the sense that, you know, I mean, it's a, I've heard different statistics, but I know it's a very small percentage of the American people uh, have know anyone, uh, whether a friend or an immediate family member who actually served. Um, but yeah, for those on the ground, I mean, uh, it's interesting that all the debates that are happening right now about immigration, because not so much in an American context, but certainly in a European one, much of the uh, migration crises uh, that are uh, inflicting a lot of the other parts of the world are, are a direct result of US foreign policy and war. Um, and uh, I, I, before we close up, I, I should mention that I have a new book that's gonna be coming out about the uh, Pakistani asylum seeker crisis in Thailand, which you might say, why is there a Pakistani asylum seeker crisis in Thailand? Well, the reason why uh, to a, a large degree is because of US intervention in Afghanistan, which pushed uh, Muslim extremists and the Taliban into big Pakistani cities where Christian minority communities lived in ghettos. Um, and then those Christian minority communities suffered persecution at the hands of the Taliban and they fled to places like Thailand. So these have all kinds of second and third order effects that, um, yeah, nobody would be able to anticipate. And, and getting back to that idea of slips, I guess the, the slip that you mentioned with the global war on terror is that, you know, when men are driven by passion more than reason, it can lead to uh, disastrous results. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what you mean by that? Yeah, well, I can think about the kinds of um, rhetoric and uh, even music that uh, I was exposed to as a senior in high school after 9-11. Ridiculous songs played on my alternative, rock, my local alternative rock station about doing terrible things to the Taliban. And um, of course there's that, uh, you know, what is that song? The country song from um, uh, the Toby Keith. Yeah, courtesy of the red, white, and blue, um, right? Shove, shove a boot in their ass, like describing, you know, what we're gonna do to the Taliban. Yeah, so there, there can be sort of these, um, these emotive um, reactions, which are, they're understandable, right? What happened at 9-11 was its own tragedy. A lot of Americans died and certainly justice uh, that justice needed to be done for the sake of those Americans um, and for the sake of, you know, America's image on, on the, the global stage. But um, that's, that's a, very different, though, than doing a nation building exercise in Afghanistan. Yeah, yes. Yeah, certainly that staying for 20 years, thinking that uh, the U.S. is uh, is capable of fixing the world's problems or, uh, yeah, teaching other nations how to have the same sort of government and culture as our own. Yeah, there's a certain hubris there. There's a reason why there's books about the hubris of American foreign policy. 
Yeah, it's hubris, but it's also part of me wonders if it's almost uh, there, there's that there's something that rubs me the wrong way with this desire of some, especially the, the sort of neoconservatives that came out of the sort of Bush years. There's this desire to impose America's will on others. You are going to be like us. Uh, you are going to accept our sort of uh cultural uh, ideas. And there, there's something that I just find really uh, off-putting about that. Oh, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, you can imagine having, you know, neighbors in your community who wanted to try and, you know, force force their way of life upon you. Yeah, it, it, there is a, there's a certain similarity um, to that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is off-putting. It was off-putting. Um, many and of it, the- It probably only serves to actually embolden supporters of the Taliban or, you know, uh, people will always talk about Iran now, right? Uh, there's still some people that go off about uh, you know, Iran's the next big threat. And I'm thinking to myself, you're just emboldening hardliners in Iran uh, when you go so hard against them and, and sort of wag your finger and say, oh, we need to impose our way of life on uh, this culture. Right. And it is, uh, it can't, it's a, it's a difficult um, line to tread in some respects, because we do recognize that a lot of countries around the world are responsible for all manner of great human rights violations. And there is a reason to, to stand up and, um, and to express our, um, our dissatisfaction and maybe even take various political or economic measures um, to, uh, to discipline countries for that. But there's, a, there's quite a bit of a difference between doing that and, um, yeah, Invading them and, and, and impressing upon them an entirely different worldview. I mean, look, in the, certainly in the Muslim world. We're just world, occupying them. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and like in, in a Muslim context, um, uh, you know, telling, uh, telling Muslim people the way they should dress, right? The kinds of things that they should watch or be exposed to, right? I mean, some of the most persuasive uh, Islamic propaganda against the West has to do with American proliferation of pornography into their communities. And I, I was going to add to that, too. I mean, I, I understand the, the human rights argument, right? And I, I think we should care about human rights. That's my basic feeling. But also, I'm not sure that actual global geopolitics is really about human rights, especially because, I mean, we have allies that constantly um, violate human rights. I mean, look, we have the, the Saudi war on Yemen, uh, which is being supported by the U.S. So, you know, we don't always, we say one thing, but we're not always uh, consistent on that with human rights. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we, if, <laughs> if we treated every country in the way that we treated Afghanistan or Iraq when it comes to human rights issues, I mean, <laughs> we, we'd have to invade half the world. Like you said, there are many examples in the Middle East, but yeah, certainly lots of other places too. I mean, look at China. You know, China is what our number one trading partner, um, and uh, the terrible violations of human rights against we the Uyghurs, Christian minority communities, what they've done in Hong Kong. Yeah, and yet, you know, major U.S. corporations uh, uh, don't have much to say about that. Well, e even with regards to like U.S. foreign policy, I mean, we support some allies like Saudi Arabia that are not exactly uh, the best with the human rights track record. And I think that's because ultimately. Uh, geopolitics isn't necessarily about, uh, you know, high ideals. Yeah, I think you're right that oftentimes human rights is used as a justification. Um, yeah, there is a there is quite a bit of uh, hypocrisy in realpolitik 
when it comes to uh, which countries we choose to censure and which we choose to um, sort of, yeah, largely ignore. So there were just two more things I wanted to mention if you have uh, time. Sure. So the first is I, I wanted to mention since we were ta- you were talking about this, uh, all those country music songs came out um, after 9-11. And I, I think there was sort of this emotional reaction. Even I got sucked into it at a very young age before I started questioning U.S. foreign policy a lot more and questioning uh, what's been called the blob in D.C. Uh, but there, there was one band. Uh, it's an American conservative band, the Wright Brothers, that actually I remember had a song called uh, Bush Was Right. <laughs> which was saying he was right about the Iraq war and right about, you know, all the global war on terror. So I guess the question I have for you is there has this, well, I won't say throughout all of 20th century history, but there has been, I think, since, I don't know, at least Ronald Reagan, uh, a sort of mentality among the Republican party of being maybe more hawkish with foreign policy why should conservatives question uh, the push to war, uh, especially when it's a foolhardy push, maybe? And also, is there a, a, a sort of conservative tradition that questions uh, being too quick to pull the trigger when it comes to war? Conservatives should be skeptical um, of war generally, because I think that is a conservative approach. Conservatives need to be conservative when it comes to, um, you know, throwing lots of money, men, and material at problems uh, in, in far-flung parts of the world where we don't necessarily have uh, strategic interests um, and where, you know, a conservative would, would, would think upon reflection, we are liable to do more harm than good. And yes, there is a, a there's a, there's an older American conservative tradition of uh, being more hesitant to get involved overseas. Uh, I I think Senator Robert Taft is one example of that from uh, the 20th century. Um, And much more beyond that, we were kind of talking about this uh, before the podcast, but the Catholic uh, just war tradition offers um, a very robust uh, conception of the kinds of criteria that need to be met um, before a nation considers going to war. Of course, (laughs) <laughs> Many neoconservative thinkers were uh, employing those just war uh, criteria uh, in the run-up to um, to the second Iraq war. I- I'm thinking of, in particular of people like George Weigel and uh, Father Richard John Newhouse, who really believed that uh, the Iraq war had uh, satisfied the criteria of just war theory, according to Augustine or uh, Thomas Aquinas. That actually got into the, the sort of last thing I wanted to get into was... Uh, Catholicism and the sort of Catholic conservative critique of uh, mainstream conservatism. Uh, I feel like a lot of Catholic conservative thinkers, including Rod Dreher, uh, I think Peter Hitchens is Catholic, even though I, I wouldn't place myself within the sort of ideological box of conservatism, although I have a lot of, I, I actually think a lot of conservatives make uh stronger arguments with regards to U.S. foreign policy than even the left anti-war movement has at times. Um, But for me, I I value the thinking uh, in some respects of Catholic conservatives for two reasons. I think there is uh, a real understanding that there's a human cost to war, among other things, and that, you know, U.S. foreign policy should rely on diplomacy 
before war. And I think that's something that a lot of Catholic conservatives have pointed out. The other thing I get out of a lot of Catholic conservative thinkers is a questioning of uh, this sort of hyper-individualism, uh, this moment of what Zygmunt Bauman uh, refers to as liquid modernity. Uh, do you think there's a case to be made that Catholic conservatives uh, have sort of contributed uh, to a conversation about both those issues, the issue of U.S. foreign policy, and also uh, maybe questioning some of the the sort of Reagan era hyper individualism. Oh yeah, I mean, I think even the the fact that so many evangelicals were appealing to just war tradition in uh, the run up to the Second Iraq War is demonstrative of the influence of uh, the Catholic tradition on conservatism that they wanted, you know, as, as much as they were hawkish and eager to overthrow uh, Saddam Hussein's regime, that they wanted to provide some sort of veneer of justification to it um, along some sort of more ancient Christian grounds, right? A, a criteria that an Augustine or Aquinas would refer to, right? Like that war has to be waged at the behest of a rightful government or that it has to be for a just cause or that soldiers have to have the right intent and uh, seek to promote good rather than evil. Um, so, and yes, I, to your point about um, individualism, yes, I, I think that the more that we do view ourselves as not atomized, uh, you know, individuals off on our own, um, but a part of a broader uh, community and society, I think that the, the more we recognize that we have an obligation to our neighbors, right, regardless of whether they're volunteer fighters or conscripted, um, to, to seek their good as well. And not uh, not to just sort of uh, you know shrug our soldiers and say well you know this that's what these guys signed up for, right? They knew the cost. They knew they knew they had to do their four years or six years or eight years or whatever. So you know if if the president wants to send them to Syria or wherever, then they got to go. Well, we if if we really do view um, society and, and we as uh, the people in society as our fellow citizens to to whom we have an obligation based on Catholic concepts like solidarity, then then we will be hesitant. To uh, to use our our military uh, in such a way, you know, both it's uh, not just for you know the good of the world, but yeah, you know, for the good of our our, our fellow uh, our fellow our neighbors. Yeah, the the only other things I would add to that is, I, I mean, with with the issue of individualism, uh, I I'd like to see a conservatism, and I, I think this has been happening in in some ways. Maybe I, I'd like to see a conservatism that is more in line with maybe. Uh, uh, a Russell Kirk, um, then I guess where the American conservative movement has gone since I would say the Reagan Thatcher years, you know, I always hated that line of uh, there is no society, only individuals. For me, the litmus test, whether you're left or right is, you know, do you acknowledge that society uh, matters and that it's a, a very tangible thing, that it's not all about you? Yeah, I um, I think that, you know, I was just in a, a fellows program um, at, with uh, Hillsdale College uh, and the opening um, retreat was this past weekend. Um, and uh, th I think there is, an, based on a lot of the conversations I heard there, I think there is an increasing skepticism towards libertarianism. And, um, and which, is, which is weird in a way, because I, I mean, ironically enough, a lot of the libertarians have been some of the most outspoken uh, anti-war voices uh, in America for the last 20 years. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of weird cross-pollination there. 
Um, but yes, I'm in full agreement with you. I, I, I don't, I could never describe myself as an expert on Kirk. I've only read um, a couple of his books and a number of passages from others, but what I have read, um, I've loved, and I'm probably, you know, if I, if I was to be placed in any camp, it would be, uh, would, would be in his, because I do think that he articulates a more coherent uh, vision of conservatism um, that doesn't, you know, I, <laughs> in, on one hand, you know, argue uh, that, you know, women, uh, we, we, you know, that, for example, take the issue of abortion, you know, conservatism, uh, you know, has had a, a very, uh, you know, sort of pro-Catholic perspective on, uh, on the life inside the womb, but in the, but it will immediately go to talking about, you know, markets and the individual person there and not, and look at, look at even how conservatives have talked about the COVID crisis. It's been very, it's been a, many of the themes coming out of the conservative movement have been very libertarian in that regard, right? Keep your, you know, keep your hands off me government, right? Well, then, even yeah. the way, even the way, war has been viewed within the Republican Party, especially during the Bush years of, you know, oh, we can just keep spending money on the Pentagon. Well, it's like, are we for small government or are we not for small government? You know? Yes. Well, yeah, certainly that as well. Or are we a republic, not an empire is another way to put it. Right. Right. Well, after the Cold War ended, we viewed ourselves as uh, the, the protectors of the free world. Um, and you can see that even um, across party lines, you know, after the Rwanda tragedy in 1994, Bill Clinton went there and he said something like, we will never let this happen again, which was, you know, it's an, it's an admirable thing to say. But what do you, what do you, what do you mean by that? There's always going to be <laughs> terrible uh, violence and even genocide that happens around the world. Look what's happening in Burma now with the Rohingya. It, it's terrible. It's brutal what the Burmese government is doing to the Rohingya people. Are we saying never again that we need to send U.S. military forces uh, into Rangoon um, in order to you know, stop the Burmese from oppressing the Rohingya? And it's a very different question. A very different. Yeah. Very different issue. And I, I definitely think about that with regards to Hillary Clinton, because, man, she was very hawkish. She was trying to out hawk the Republican hawks. So, I, I mean, yeah, it is very uh, cross partisan, uh, you know, uh, the final note I wanted to end on was we talked about uh, the human cost of war. I guess, is there anything you want to say in closing about that? Because I feel like that really gets lost in the shuffle a lot of times when we discuss war. And I, I guess the thing that angers me a lot when people talk about U.S. foreign policy, and I've had people you know, openly say this to me that are more, I guess, centrist or uh, neoconservative or liberal even, you know, within those sort of three camps. Um, I've had people say, well, you know, what does it matter if uh, we have to send these kids off to war, right? We're, we're giving them an opportunity. We're giving them a way out of their dead end town. You know, I, I have a lot of friends that uh, are from places like Greenville, PA, and they view enlisting as uh, a way out of, you know, uh, their situation. And I've had people sort of that I would say are pretty elitist in their mentality say, well, you know, we're giving them an opportunity and uh, it, it is what it is. You know, if, if they make it out alive, then they're better off for it. I, I think that's such a callous view to have. And I feel like a lot of uh, political elites in this country don't think about the human cost of war very much at all. Well, we can just keep sending more troops. Half a million uh, U.S. soldiers uh, are struggling with PTSD right now uh, because of Afghanistan and Iraq. So the human cost has been 
substantial. I don't know how you quantify that. You know, I mean, we talk about the billions of dollars that have been uh, <laughs> wasted spending, uh, you know, trying to promote democracy, as you said, in some of these countries around the world. How do you quantify the, the human cost of half a million Americans who have PTSD, right? Um, the number of veterans who commit suicide every year. Um, the, the costs are real. They're, they're somewhat invisible, I think, because of what I said. So few Americans know veterans, know people who have served in these conflicts. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I'm much more uh, supportive of you know, people like you know, J.D. Vance and Steve Case who are, are, are you know, articulating a, a need to have a stronger uh, economic focus on a lot of these you know, Rust Belt towns, like you know, places like Pennsylvania, like you're talking about, right? Those, that's the future for people in you know, dead end towns where there aren't a lot of, uh, there isn't a lot of economic mobility, right? We need to be focused on building up American industry and giving people an opportunity to exemplify courage in their communities. Uh, there's plenty of examples to do that. There's a lot, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of, there's, a, there's a, 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 not just a pandemic right now, but there's also, there's a drug pandemic, uh, you know, addiction. There's a pornography pandemic. We need people to to exemplify courage in fighting against those things. Um, so I don't well, think we're, people- we're almost completely isolated. You know, we're, we're atomized. We're on our Netflix and our apps on the phone. And I don't want to sound, you know, like the uh, angry old man yelling about it, but I mean, we, we, we have lost a sense of community. Um, we're extremely isolated now. And I think, you know, part of the reason for things like the opioid epidemic is in fact, because I feel like a, there's been a loss of meaning <laughs> in our lives. I mean, I think we don't have meaningful work anymore. And I think these things do affect our ability uh, to function uh, in day-to-day -day life and in society. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Certainly there's a, there's a nobility and I, I am so, uh, you know, honored to have gotten to serve in Afghanistan along so many people that <laughs> demonstrated far more bravery uh, and, and self-sacrifice than I ever did. Um, and and I should add, I, I hope you and uh, my listeners didn't get the impression. I, I'm not saying that everyone who enlists is from, you know, uh, some town that they want to get out of or anything like that. I hope you didn't uh, misinterpret that. No, I didn't. But I mean, I, I've heard statistics. There was some statistic and, you know, re readers can or listeners can can check up on it. But I had heard something in a class that I took recently that it's something like um, there are more soldiers enlisted in the military from the state of Alabama, which I think has maybe like four, four and a half million people than the metropolitan areas of New York, L.A. and Chicago combined. So there is I think there is some truth to this idea that you know people are in uh, you know more remote parts of the country where there aren't a lot of economic opportunities are looking to the military to provide that in a professional way out right these guys get out of the military and uh, if you survive you know these wars then there are there are you know there's a <laughs> there's a marine plumbing like former marines plumbing company in northern virginia where i live um, so uh, yeah there there are more opportunities for people but gosh the costs um, there has to be a better way to do this than, uh, yeah, than, than having our young men and women go across the world. And to, yeah. I, I was just going to say, uh, and I'm sorry I, I kept you over time, but I guess what I was getting at earlier, um, I, I think with regards to U.S. foreign policy, there's a real growing rift between foreign policy elites and everyone else. Because a lot of the, you know, the D.C. Uh, punditocracy and whatnot 
uh, we're going on and on about, you know, withdrawal is, is the worst thing ever. When, as far as I can tell, a lot of Americans supported it. And I guess what aggravates me when talking about U.S. foreign policy, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I really wanted to get them from you, is, you know, you have these characters like Robert Kagan uh, that will constantly talk about, well, you know, we need to be the superpower. We need to do all these military interventions, but it's not their kids that they send off to those wars. And uh, I feel like there's this growing rift between the sort of political elites and the people they're supposed to be governing. They're, they're just sort of throwing them to the wolves in a lot of ways. Yes. And um, I participated in the American Conservative Fellows Program uh, this past spring. And when we had the lecture on foreign policy, one the lecturer who gave it, I forget his name, he very explicitly said we should have mandatory conscription for all U.S. citizens in the sense of, you know, everybody should have to you know, cough up their children, because if that were the case, then, you know, the elites living in, you know, the, you know, the, the big zips, right, in, uh, in the United States, the most, the most wealthiest parts of this country would be a lot more hesitant to, to send, you know, the U.S. military overseas, um, if everybody had to bear the burden equally. So with that being said, I kept you over time. How can my listeners keep up with your work and your writing? Um, <clears throat> sure. So I think you mentioned the main places, which I write regularly, New Oxford Review, The Federalist, American Conservative, Crisis Magazine. I have a website, kcchalk.com. And as I mentioned, I have a book that will be coming out with Sophia Institute Press called The Persecuted, about uh, the Pakistani asylum seeker in uh, crisis in Thailand. So I definitely would urge listeners uh, to check that out. It'll be published in uh, November. But the Amazon I, I'll have to get a copy of that book. Maybe we can have you back on. Oh, I'd love to talk about it. Well, thank you again, Casey Chalk, for coming on Parallax Views. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Doug Bondow and Casey Chalk. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a one, five, ten, fifteen, and hundred dollar tier that you can support me at. Any amount will help. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. 
bit, no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic community or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.